If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and all those who were with him, they called together the council, all the Senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would come, to, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the man whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you to not teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it really is great to be with you. And uh, wanted to just mention Brian Mowry, our lead pastor, and Greg Nelson, one of the elders in this location, are uh, not with us this week. They're in Africa. They're in Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, they're gathering with leaders from around the world who oversee a number of churches in our New Frontiers family of churches Uh, which is about 2,000 churches across 77 different nations. And they are praying together and seeking God for, uh, you know, what he would have us to do. And so please be praying for them. It's a joy to be a part of uh, this large extended family of churches. Uh, But also we get to play a part in that. And one of the major ways we do is praying in times like this. So please keep them in your prayers uh, this week. Well, jumping into this message, uh, I want to just ask you to imagine with me a situation in your life where uh, you really wanted to get out of it. And uh, it could be an awkward date. It could be 
uh, right now. It could be any situation, but uh, a situation, I mean, you really wanted to get out of it. And I'll tell you mine. Mine is, uh, when I was in high school, I had a 1995 red Honda Civic. And uh, I had the subs in the back, you know, and I was just, I was actually like this, driving down what was called the Belt Highway, going 50 miles an hour, just like bumping with my subs, you know? And I was texting and driving. And I was texting and driving, and I hit this uh, white F-150 that was parked at a stoplight. I'm going 50, it's parked at a stoplight. So I actually never hit my brakes, no skid marks. Uh, just texting and driving, smashed it. My car was totaled, uh, my baby red Civic was gone, and uh, within a week I was driving my mom's car, because that's what you do, and uh, got pulled over by the highway patrolman going 73 and a 60. And uh, it was bad enough, he got me out of my car and had me sit in his car in the passenger seat. And he's sitting there looking at me kind of like, son, what were you thinking? And, and uh, you know, that was one of those moments where I wanted to just fake cry with all that I had to try and get out of it. And uh, I did, I was kind of quietly tapping my heels where I was just saying, there's no place like home, there's no place. <laughs> and it didn't get me out of it, unfortunately, but I'm sure you have your own stories to tell, but reality is most of our stories uh, do not compare to this story. And I just want you to imagine with me what the apostles were experiencing in this prison, because this is not a nice county jail. This is a situation which uh, most of the people in these prisons died. Uh, some of them were executed, some died just because the conditions were so bad. Uh, in, and they're in this prison because they're preaching the gospel. And an angel comes in the night and breaks them out of prison. And you would expect the angel to break them out and to say to them, all right, boys, now get out of town. Or maybe just to be so kind as to supernaturally transport them to some other city or nation. But that is not what the angel does. The angel does not come to their relief. He breaks them out of prison, not to set them free, but to commission them once again to go back to the people. He says, Acts 5.20, he says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all these words of life which at face, at face value seems like a great encouragement to keep preaching Jesus until you recognize the implications. A group of men who are in prison and their lives being threatened for preaching a message. And the angel says, I'm not breaking you out to send you back to safety. No, 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 I'm breaking you out so you can march right back to the center of the city, to the temple itself, to the center of the power of those who are threatening your life so that you might stand up and preach again. I want you to go and I want you to stand and speak for Jesus, no matter what it costs you. Which is my first point, which is in order to elevate Christ, we must be willing to sacrifice comfort. In other words, if you and I are to actually follow Jesus in our lives, it will cost us. The angel comes not to bring travel mercies, but to send them back into danger, back out to get their heads chopped off, to get arrested and imprisoned and beaten again. And, and you know what? Sure, these guys aren't educated guys. They're, they're common men, as we learned last week, but they're not stupid. They know that this is gonna cost them, and it did cost them. When the Sanhedrin arrested them again, it says they beat them good. Under second century Jewish rules, Jewish flogging consisted of 13 harsh strokes on the chest and 26 on the back. It was affectionately known as 40 lashings minus one. We're, we're not talking about a slap on the wrist for these apostles. We're talking about a brutal beating. The Sadducees weren't just a little upset with the apostles. Verse 33 tells us they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So here we have the apostles of the Christian faith beaten 39 times by men whose hearts are full of hate towards them. And they could have avoided it. They could very well have just not followed the angel's orders and left and had their freedom. 
The angel broke them out at night. They didn't preach until daybreak. They had plenty of time to make an escape. But when the day came, they stood and preached. But can you imagine that night with those apostles? What was going on in their hearts and minds? Can you imagine? I mean, on one hand, you have the awe and the wonder and probably the worship of, wow, God is so faithful. God just broke us out of prison by an angel appearing to us and miraculously helping us escape. And then the fear, the intimidation, the battle of their own will. I mean, to, to intent, it's one thing to be in a painful situation. It's another thing to walk into a painful situation and stand in a painful situation, knowing that your life may be at risk. I mean, what they did is a very similar experience to that of what their leader, Jesus, had endured not long before. It says in the Garden of Gethsemane, the depiction of Jesus before the cross is not as you would expect. It's not one of a heroic leader who is fearless before his death. No, it's one of great anxiety and fear. It says that something like drops of blood, he was, he, he was sweating something like drops of blood, that he asked God to find another way to allow him to avoid the cross. We see in these moments the humanity of Jesus, a man like us who can sympathize with our weaknesses. When we experience fear as we seek to share with family and friends of what God has done in Christ for them, or we invite them along to Easter, which I hope that you'll invite people to our Easter service on April 21st. Statistics say that eight out of 10 people will say yes if you invite them to an Easter service. And yet less than 2% of Christians actually invite to an Easter service. Makes me wonder if maybe we have a little bit of the fear that we need God to come and meet us where we are. Because everything in us resists standing and speaking for Jesus. We want to, we want to want to, but we resist because we're afraid of what someone might think of us. We're afraid of how they might respond. And yet Jesus, our leader and our King can sympathize with our weakness. He can sympathize with that very human desire to want to avoid pain and awkward situations. He can sympathize and so can the apostles. I mean, they had witnessed the suffering of Jesus firsthand. They knew Matthew 10, 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. They knew this. They heard it from his mouth. They knew following him came at a cost and it had cost them already. Already they had laid aside family and friends and their career. Already following them had cost them so much. And yet here they are again, faced with a decision. Do we take the road of comfort or do we go back to the temple? Do we take the road of comfort or do we go back to that place that is painful and awkward where difficult things await us? Do we go back to that coworker, to the family member, to the neighbor, as tired as we are, as ready as you may be to give up, to pack your bags, to settle into the ordinary life of never taking a risk for God, a life of saying yes to fear and no to God, as tempting as that is at times, I believe that the Holy Spirit of God is here today to say the same thing to us that that angel said to those apostles, to go and to stand and to speak this message of good news that the son of God has come to give his life as a ransom for the world, that any who would call on his name might believe and be saved, that our sins might be forgiven and us have life in his name to go, not backing down, but standing up and opening our mouths with this message of good news. The question comes though, why? Why would you do that again? Why would you go back to maybe that place where you tried and failed before? Why would the apostles go back? Why would they bother to speak? Why would they stand up again when they knew beatings were coming? Why would they go in a city where they knew every religious and political force in that city was standing against them to resist their cause? Why? 
I believe, it's my second point, that it's because no person or institution can stop God's purposes and they knew it. It's evident in the text and it's evident in the entire history of the people of God. In the text, first, we have the angelic deliverance. The high priest was the chief religious authority of the day. He had major pull and sway to get others to agree with him and to do what he wanted. He called together all the senate of all the people of Israel. That is all three courts or benches of judges in Jerusalem. It's not just the Sanhedrin, which consisted of 70 elders, but it's also the other two benches consisting of 23 judges each, 116 judges in all, which represented every single person in Jerusalem. Why would you call together this massive senate, this massive council of judges only for the most important things, only for the things that had the most impact on the city? And yet this is just a religious matter. It's just some group of people who are claiming that their religious leader is the religious leader. Why would he call them all together? It's evident in the text. It's because the high priest was done with these Christians. Verse 33 tells us the council was ready to kill them. They were bringing the hammer down on this revolution once and for all. They were gonna be done with it. Or so they thought. Verse 19 tells us, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Matthew Henry, pastor and author in England in the late 1600s, reflecting on this passage, says this. God sent his angel to release them out of prison and to renew their commission to preach the gospel. The powers of darkness fight against them, but the father of lights fights for them and sends an angel of light to plead their cause. The Lord will never desert his witnesses, his advocates, but will certainly stand by them and bear them out. There is no prison so dark, so strong, but God can both visit his people in it. And if he pleased, fetch them out of it. What the high priest forbade them to do, the angel bade them to do. They were under higher orders than the high priest for angelic beings are given them orders direct from heaven and from Jesus himself. Friends, there's not a prison on earth strong enough to stop the purposes of God in your life and mine. As Psalm 107 tells us, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. I don't know what kind of prison you're facing in life, wherever you feel held back, resisted, but God says he'll deliver you and he'll deliver you not just so that you can be free, he'll deliver you so that you can stand and speak on his behalf. The angel breaks him out, but he also shuts the door behind him. This may be my favorite part of the story. The guards had no clue that the prisoners left. Neither did the high priest. Not until he was standing before his entire council to bring the hammer down on these Christians did the messenger come up, come in and say, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door. It's good news. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. I mean, that must've just felt like standing naked in front of all these people. And then to hear that the apostles are standing in the temple and teaching the people. The text says that the gathering was perplexed. Sounds like a bit of an understatement to me. The high priest himself uh, said something that if the angelic deliverance doesn't convince you of God's purposes being unstoppable by man or any institution, maybe this will. The high priest himself said about the apostles' work, he said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Now, to give you a little background, the Roman historian Tacitus estimates that during this period, the population of Jerusalem was 600,000 people. Here, the priest says they have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. This massive metropolitan buzzing city is buzzing with this message of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the thing that everyone's talking about and it is turning on its head every single social, economic, political, and religious structure of the city. 
This is what is happening in the city. Jesus Christ has come. And how is that possible though? How is it possible that a 600,000 person metropolitan bustling city is filled with the message of Jesus? How is it possible that this movement gathers that much steam less than 30 years after the death of its leader? Gamaliel, it's actually pronounced Gamaliel, but I was struggling with that. So I just said Gamaliel, (laughs) helps us here. To give a little background, he was a student of one of the greatest rabbis of all time. Hillel. Not only was he trained by the best, but he trained the best, according to Acts 22.3. He says that the apostle Paul, that was Saul at that time, before his conversion to Christianity, was leading the Pharise- he was the leading Pharisee among all his peers, and he was personally tutored by this man. Not only that, but he was widely respected and probably the most influential Pharisaic leader of his time, holding prestige as a Jerusalem aristocrat. He was so honored that the people gave him the affectionate title, Rabban, or our teacher, He said that if this thing was of men, it would die off, just like the other revolutions in Jewish history. But if it was of God, there would be no stopping it. For all the revolutions die unless they're the doing of God himself. He gave two examples. Theodos was a perfect example. According to Josephus, Jewish historian, Theodos was a Jewish magician who gathered followers to the river Jordan, promising to part it until the Roman governor, Thetis, sent troops who killed and captured members of the crowd and Theodos was beheaded. It was the end of that revolution. Judas, the Galilean, led the tax revolt of AD 6. The Romans retaliated by destroying Sepphoris, which was known as the Jewel of Galilee, the great capital city. Judas's model led to the revolution, which later became known as the the Zealots. And the Romans vehemently resisted them. Gamaliel thus painted a picture of Jesus alongside these revolutionaries. Why then did the Christian message, unlike these other revolutions, take off when these failed? Well, if you look at their origins and the two other case studies, the leader gathers a following, it seems promising, and then it faces resistance, the leader's killed, and the following dies off. It's almost exactly the same in the Christian tradition. Jesus gathers a following, it seems promising, he faces resistance, he's killed, and the following dies off. All 12 apostles denied that they even knew him. Peter himself, his right-hand man, denied him three consecutive times. And then all of a sudden, the Christian community seems to have a resurrection of sorts. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men plus women and children joined this following. After this, every day their following grows, seemingly like a wildfire, fast and uncontrollable, faster than anyone can keep up with. People are flocking to these Christians, claiming they have a power to heal diseases. Story after story of miraculous things, unlike anything seen before. A man lame from birth, whom the entire city knows is miraculously healed. And then 5,000 more men, plus women and children, probably 20,000 people in the crowd, joined the Christian ranks. This thing seems out of control. And it wasn't just Jerusalem. Christianity quickly filled Judea. And then in Acts 6, we see it breaking into Samaria. And by the end of the book of Acts, it seems as though this message is uncontrollably moving to the very ends of the earth. How is that possible? How does a revolution like that happen? Well, the Christian explanation of the resurrected Christian community is simply the resurrected Jesus Christ, that he has risen from the dead. It's what we're celebrating on Easter. This is why Christians for over 2,000 years have not just claimed moral improvement through religious teachings, but a life-giving relationship with the man himself, Jesus Christ. How do you have a relationship with a dead man? You don't. 
It's only explained by his resurrection. It's his resurrection that caused the apostles to say with confidence, we must obey God rather than men because their leader was alive. And God himself had affirmed by the ministry and teaching of this man, Jesus Christ, by rising him from the dead. Which brings me to my final point, which I think may be the one that pierces us the most, if we'll hear it, which is that we see in this story a wholehearted devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. First by the angel who commands the apostles, go, stand, and speak all the words of this life. What are the words of this life? Simply put, the gospel itself. The gospel message, simply put, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which thereby made it possible for humanity to be forgiven of their sins and brought back to a relationship with God himself. But notice how the apostles preached this gospel. Acts 5, verse 30 through 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Notice the pointed accusation. You killed Jesus. But they actually weren't the ones who killed Jesus. The council didn't bang the nails into his hands and his feet. It wasn't them. It was the Romans. The Romans were the ones who beat him and whipped him. The Romans put the crown of thorns on his head. They drove the nails into his hands and feet. The Romans lifted him up naked on a cross to be publicly mocked and shamed and ridiculed. It was the Romans who did it. How then do the apostles have the audacity to say to this council, you killed Jesus? Well, somewhat like a drunk driver. The car is actually the thing that kills the innocent child in the other car. The vehicle did the damage. The vehicle is the one that took the life. And yet the vehicle doesn't go on trial. It's the drunk person in the driver's seat who goes on trial for the life of that child. Why? Because they were the cause behind the death. They were the motivation for it. They were the source of it. In the same way, this council and all the people were the ones crying out, crucify him. When the Romans hammered those nails into his feet and pressed that crown of thorns down on his head and spit on him and mocked him. It was the people crying out. And actually the same is true of us. You and I are the source of why Jesus went to the cross. We may not have been the one holding the hammer, but we're the reason he went. Jesus did not go to the cross because little boys and girls made a few mistakes and needed to be better. God did not execute his son and pour down his anger and wrath upon his son because we needed a little pick-me-up to get us through the week. The only reason God murdered his son, the only reason that Jesus, the perfect sinless man, took upon himself the sins of the world, that the father crushed him by pouring out his wrath upon him. The only reason that the son of God hung there with the weight of our sin and our shame. I mean, think about the sin and the shame that you feel, the shame that you feel after a sin something wrong that you've done, especially something to hurt someone else. Think about the whole of humanity, past, present, future history, all of that sin and shame, that guilt being poured out upon Jesus and laid upon his shoulders on the cross that the father could not even look on his son. And he did that because of your sins and mine. Our sins hung him there. As Martin Luther said, we all carry around his nails in our pockets. 
And at his final breath, the scripture tells us that the earth shook and the rocks split and the temple curtain tore in two, symbolizing there was no longer a barrier between men and God. That that mountain of sin that we had piled up our entire lives, that we could never do enough good to get on top of and get back to God, that we could never work ourselves out of, that mountain of sin, God once and for all tore it down so that we might be brought back to relationship with him. As we're told in Colossians, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, heaven's nails don't fail. When he nailed our sins on the cross, they stay there. And if you just hear this, that if you believe that he is, Jesus Christ is the son of God who died for your sins and you commit your life to following him, asking him to forgive you and be the leader of your life. If you do that, all of your sins, your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, they will be set aside and nailed with him on that cross once and for all. And if you have done that, that is the truth over your life. No longer are they accredited to us. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. He takes upon himself the death that we deserved and we receive the eternal life that he earned. He takes upon himself all the guilt and the punishment for our sin and we receive the reward for all of his good. The perfect relationship with the father that he has had forever, we receive that because he exchanged his life for ours. And yet this is an exchange. It's an exchange that can only be received. We give our life and we receive his life in return. It's given as a gift. Repentance, which is just turning away from our sin and turning back to God and forgiveness of sins is given as a gift. We can't earn it. We can't clean our lives up enough to get it. We can't climb our way up to it. It is given as a gift, which means that we can only receive it. And if you try and work for it, if you try and become Christian enough or religious enough or moral enough, you can't have it. You can only have it if you receive it as a gift. For God resurrected him and exalted him to his right hand as both leader and savior. You know, there's something about a leader. A leader has followers. If you claim to be a leader and you look back and there's no one following you, you're not a leader. You're just on a walk. (laughs) For the apostles to claim that he is leader and savior of God's people, that means there are people following him. And for him to be our savior, he must be our leader. And if we're not willing for him to be the leader of our lives, then he cannot save us. He will only save those who come and follow after him. As Matthew Henry said, there is no having Christ to be our savior unless we be willing to take him for our prince. We cannot expect to be redeemed and healed by him unless we give up ourselves to be ruled by him. Christ's ruling is in order to his saving. And faith takes an entire Christ that came not to save us in our sins, but to save us from our sins. If he be your savior, he must first be your leader. The text says God exalted Jesus to his right hand as leader and savior. The word leader is a Greek word, archagos, It's found four times in the New Testament and it's interpreted differently every single time. Acts chapter three, it's interpreted that he is the author of life. Here in chapter five, it's translated that he's the leader or in the NIV, the prince. Hebrews chapter two, the NIV says that he's the captain of our salvation. And in Hebrews 12, that he is the founder or the pioneer of our faith. If you read Greek literature, 
and you probably don't. Uh, this, word, this word is often used in Greek literature to, re, to refer to the heroes of Greek mythology. Hercules being the greatest of them, this word is used more often for him than any other hero. What is a hero? Where heroes weren't fully men and they weren't God. They were some other race, something in between. They weren't average men. They had dignity and strength and honor. and They had an ability to bring hope to people when they had no hope in themselves. They were something outside of the people to look to beyond themselves, to place their hope and their confidence in. Something that stirred their heart and made them live for more. Every culture has its heroes because the human heart longs for a hero because God made us to have a hero. When the New Testament authors chose this word, they positioned Jesus as the ultimate hero, the God-man, that he is the leader and the prince and the captain and the author and the pioneer. Everything the human heart longs for is found in him. It's merely a question of if we will give our lives to come and follow him and receive all that he has for us, or if we'll try and be the hero or look to other heroes. But the scriptures tell us that he is the one. And this is the message that the apostles preached. It says they preached it every day in the temple and from house to house. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Friends, this strikes me. Every day, everywhere they could, in the temple, the established religious facility where people were coming to hear about God, a lot like this, and in the most intimate setting you can imagine, a home. And everywhere in between, every day, they did not cease preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Christ. He is the hero. And look what God did through them when they just devoted themselves wholeheartedly to this gospel message. For themselves, they received it and they soaked in it and they lived it. And they stood up everywhere they went and they preached it. Just imagine what would happen in our community if we devoted ourselves wholeheartedly to the message of the gospel, both to receiving it for ourselves to where we woke up in the mornings and while we're brewing our coffee, we're speaking over ourselves. that He is the son of God who came and gave his life for my sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead to give me life forever in his name. And he's seated on that throne in heaven. And one day he's returning for me and all of God's people to gather us up and Give us a new heaven and a new earth that we might live with him forever. And all who call upon his name will be saved. I mean, can you imagine if you just started your day every day like that? Standing there making your coffee. Maybe when you first get up in the morning, just whatever room you're in, just get on your knees and speak that over yourself and say, God, I'm yours. I wanna come follow you. I wanna receive and live in this gospel. How that would fortify and strengthen and change your day, maybe your life. When the apostles left the presence of the council, it says that they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I cannot get my head around this, this one, honestly. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. <sighs> I mean, their, their chest and their backs just lacerated and bleeding. They're rejoicing. I mean, friends, we struggle to rejoice when we've like had a bad day at work. We've got some relational problem. When our finances aren't what we wanted or our life didn't turn out the way we had hoped. 
they're rejoicing that they're counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We miss a little something in the translation. The Greek reads a little more like this. They were honored to be dishonored for Christ. Why were they rejoicing? For the joy of being counted with Jesus. They were rejoicing because they got to be associated with him. And that to them was more joyous than all the pain and everything it cost them. That was more wonderful to them to be just counted with Jesus than all the comfort and pleasure of this world. Now, when they were getting the beatings, I don't know that they were doing it with a great smile. Oh yeah, give me another. I don't think so. They experienced real pain, real difficulty, real trial. And that they came out of that rejoicing because they knew that they were counted with their king, with their hero. And they were closer to him and to knowing his sufferings then than they ever had been before. The Christian church has always been a persecuted church, not just in the first few centuries, but even today. Various parts of the world, believers are oppressed, beaten, imprisoned, even murdered for believing and spreading this message. And yet the church has never been stronger. Tertullian, the famous African Christian in AD 197, addressing the rulers of the Roman Empire, cried out. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. For the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the lower you lay us, the higher you raise us. The more you kill us, the more we grow. Richard Wormbrand, after 14 years of communist imprisonment and torture in Romania, his home country, he said, Christians are like nails. The harder you hit them, the deeper they go. Wormbrand went on to say, not all of us are called to die a martyr's death, but all of us are called to have that same spirit of self-sacrifice and love to the very end as these martyrs did. Friends, many of us won't and probably never will face physical persecution for our faith. And yet when we walk out of this room today, we all have a decision to make. That we will either go into society, to our workplace, to our neighborhoods, to our family, and we'll blend in, trying to be like a chameleon that just doesn't stick out and kind of hides our faith to self-protect that nothing bad would come to us, that no one would dislike us for being a Christian or for believing that this is the truth. We can go that road or we can go the road of being counted with Jesus, of standing and speaking that this is the author and the pioneer and the champion of our faith. And that any who would call on his name would be saved. One road will lead to great shame and regret and the other will lead to eternal and lasting joy. My prayer for our church is that we be a community that chooses time and time again, no matter what the cost to be counted with Jesus that we might be honored to be dishonored for him. And that's something that only the spirit of God can do in us. So I just wanna end our time by praying for us together. Will you stand with me?